Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Mike Herring, and I will be your host for today's episode. Good afternoon, fellows. This afternoon, I have the pleasure of spending some time with, again, no stranger to you all, our former president of the college, Andrew, known as Andy Montgomery Coates. Andy, you there? I am indeed. Great. Thank you so much. Andy, as I indicated, the fellows know all about you and perhaps more than anything because of your tenure as president of the college, but also because of your work on one of the more famous and illustrious cases involving college sports. We're going to spend some time talking about that case, sure. but I'd rather devote the first portion of our time today to Andy Copes, I want to acquaint the fellows with you and your background, some things that might not get nearly as much coverage, if that's okay with you. Sure. Let's do that. Yeah. Let's start off with some softballs. Are you an Oklahoma native? I am. My family's been here since statehood, and so far they haven't run us out of state, which is always a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And how did law school get on your trajectory? Were there other lawyers in your family? Was it a calling? What was it? I had an uncle who was a lawyer, but really not any other members of the family. And, uh, you know, the usual kind of story, I suppose, I got involved in, in speech work and speech contests when I was in high school. And I used to go down to courthouse and watch uh, cases being tried and fell in love with the idea of being an advocate. So I took courses in undergraduate school, which would be helpful. And the Navy put me through college and I spent three years an advisor to the Chinese. I didn't know much, but in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. I knew a little more than they did, and so I could be an advisor. And then instead of staying out there in Taiwan and getting rich like a lot of my friends did in the import-export business, I came back to University of Oklahoma, went to law school, and was nervous. And most of my early friends had flunked out, so it was a bit of a challenge. But came out all right, did well, and uh, went to work when I got out of law school for what I thought was probably one of the best trial lawyers in Oklahoma big law firm, one of the early fellows of the college named V.P. Crow, and I had him as a mentor and a guy named Willie Paul, who was also a fellow of the college, but was president of the American Bar Association. And so I was very fortunate in getting to learn at the early level with folks that were really, really skilled at our profession, and I learned a lot from them. Yeah. So if I heard you correctly, as a schoolboy, you were going down to the courthouse to watch trials. Did I hear that correctly? I did. Yeah, I'd get out of school. and I played on the golf team, so we did golf when it was good weather, and we got through earlier than most. So when I left law school, sometimes I'd go to the golf course, and sometimes I went to the courthouse. Actually, that's a pattern that's been my whole life. I've either gone to the golf course or the courthouse. But, you know, I would find out if there's a good trial going on, and I wanted to go hear it. So I'd go hear the afternoon part of it. Couldn't go in the daytime because I was going to school. But it was interesting, and you learned from watching that some of the ones were pretty good and some of them weren't so good, and it was interesting. Were there any particular types of cases that appealed to your interests? Well, you know, always the more dramatic cases were criminal cases, of course, but some of the high-dollar civil cases were interesting, too, and I'd get to watch parts of the cases, and then I'd usually have to read the paper sometimes to find out what happened to it. Yeah. It was an interesting for a kid to get to do that. Yeah. Now, so were you observing trials as a law student or as a high schooler? No, as a high school student. I mean, we did some in law school as well, as too, but mostly as a high school student. 
Fascinating. Were your parents aware that you were hanging out around the courthouse? Yes. Now, there was a snooker parlor right behind the courthouse. Sometimes I'd go over there, and I don't think Dad knew I was hanging around the snooker parlor, but he didn't know that I was going down to the courthouse. You'll have to forgive me. Is snooker the same as a pool hall? Well, snooker's a bigger pool table. It's a wonderful game, but it's like pool, except the pockets are smaller and the balls are smaller and you have a bigger table. It's a little more of a test. Got it. Got it. All right. So you come out of law school in 63. That's right. Mm-hmm. And that was after your tour in the Navy. And before we talk about your law career, I want to go back to the Navy a bit. How did you end up with a posting in China? Well, it's really sort of interesting. I took a lot of history courses, and there was a professor here named Percy Buchanan, who was an extraordinary fellow. He and his brother had toured China in the early days. He knew how to tune pianos, and his brother played the musical saw. So they would go to the various Christian places around there, and they'd fix the piano and entertain them with the saw, and they toured China. And he learned to speak Chinese very well and that sort of thing. But he taught history of Asia, history of Japan, history of China. And I took all his courses. And I found out sometime later that he was a recruiter for the CIA. He was recruiting guys to go into the CIA to do Asia. And some of my friends went over there and didn't come back. So it was a bad deal. They went to Vietnam in the early days. But anyway, I couldn't do it. I had a Navy requirement, and so I couldn't be recruited by him. But when I was in Taiwan, I was aboard ship for about a year. And then I got orders to Taiwan, which was very surprising. And several months after I'd been there, was in a place called the Friends of China Club. And uh, he was there. He always took several students and toured the Far East in the summertime. And I said, Dr. Buchanan, I'm really surprised to see you here. He says, I'm not surprised to see you here. So obviously he had some friendship in the Jew Pers and the Navy or something because of my history in China and all that I'd learned. I think he thought I'd be a good guy to go to Taiwan and be an advisor to the Chinese. So that's kind of how I got there. And I enjoyed it very much and almost didn't come back. So you must watch and listen to the news on U.S.-China relations, particularly with Taiwan, with great interest. I do. And I worry about it, of course. It's not a democracy in the sense that we are a democracy. It's like they had moved all of our senators and congressmen. The country had been invaded and all our government went out to Hawaii. And so when they have election, they get to elect the senator from Hawaii. But that doesn't matter because they've got the senators from all the other states on Honolulu. So, you know, it's a strange little country, but it's done very well and people are prosperous and it's a happy place. And so I worry about it. Not sure I want to start a world war over it, but it's a problem and I hope they just leave it alone. Did you ever become fluent in Chinese? I didn't. I got to where I could do some. The problem was that there were two million Chinese there and eight million Taiwanese and they couldn't talk to each other. And so the only people that you could talk to in Mandarin were the folks that were some of the senior officers of the Chinese army and some of the scientists, because the people you dealt with every day only spoke Taiwanese. And so there wasn't a lot of incentive to learn a language that you could only use very seldom. So I didn't. I wish I had now, but I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been back since? Yes. I went back when I was mayor of Oklahoma City. I went back three times as a guest of the mayor of Taiwan. We had a sister city relationship, and so I was back there. And then also Oklahoma City University, as it happens, had more Taiwanese students there than most any place else in the country. So we had a pretty good relationship with Taipei and Oklahoma City over the years, and, and I enjoyed going back. That's an interesting coincidence that Oklahoma City University would have a higher concentration of Taiwanese students than any other. It seemed to me to be an odd thing, but there it was. And so when I was mayor, of course, I encouraged them. The city universities would find a little school, and it was a great thing for them to be able to come in significant droves. Oddly enough, I went back. My wife died, and I got remarried seven years ago. And on our honeymoon, we went back to Tokyo, Taipei, and Hong Kong. And I'm really looking forward to being able to show Nancy around in Taipei. 
Hell, I couldn't show him one thing. It had changed so much. The office building that I had then was a six-story building. It was a walk-up building called the Sugar Building, and it was gone, and the second highest building in the world is sitting there where it was. I mean, the whole place had just turned upside down. But it was fun to get back. I can imagine. So you complete your tour. You come back to the States. As you say, the Navy put you through law school. You come out in 63. And where'd you go to work? Where'd you start your practice? Well, I went to work at a firm called Crow and Dunleavy, and uh, it's one of the three or four largest firms in the state. And as I did that, as I say, uh, Bill Paul, or one of my fellows, recruited me. I worked there in the summertime and then went to work and when I graduated. It was good times because in those days I could sit second chair or third chair in some of the big trials, and then they had enough smaller cases, subrogation cases and others, that I got to try some cases within a year or so after being out. So I got the experience of watching the good guys do it and then get to do some of it myself, which was a great thing. I really enjoyed that part. I mean, you worry about it a lot. You know, important cases keep you up at night and, you know, you live with them. But it sure was an interesting and exciting time. Do you remember from back then attributes of your mentors that stood out for you as being sort of exemplary of good trial lawyer? I do. And the first and foremost thing that I learned for all of them was preparation. Mr. Crow never thought we were prepared enough. Sometimes you had to quit preparing and go to trial, but it wasn't because we'd done everything we could do. But the total preparation of all of the things that have to be done to bring it together make it work and get out and get the witness statements and view the place where everything happened and go through all of the discovery processes and do all that sort of thing was just essential to be able to really present the case properly. And I guess that's the thing I learned the most. I mean, I learned a lot of things about the way he handled witnesses and the way he handled jurors, and he was really, really quite good at it. And uh, I could watch a couple of the other partners that were good but had different styles. And so it was a wonderful opportunity for me. Now, was your practice diverse in that you were able to do civil and criminal matters in your early days as an associate? Yeah, what happened was, of course, the firm did mostly civil stuff. But in those days, there wasn't a federal public defender. So we got appointed a lot to represent indigent persons in federal court. In fact, I got to the place later in my early career so that I would wait at the back door and peer through the window till my guy was called and I'd run up and do what I needed to do with him and get the hell out of there. Because if you waited around, you picked up another case on the way out and you did that in addition to all the other stuff that you were doing in the firm. But it was a good chance to get both some exposure to some of the criminal cases and to some of the civil cases. And also along the way, I picked up a couple of divorce cases. And so throughout my practice, I probably had I don't know, 20% of my practice were big-time divorce cases. In fact, it's interesting, when I stopped being dean down here and was deciding what courses I was going to teach, I'd taught torts all along, but I was going to teach conflicts of law or some of those courses that I insurance law that I thought were really interesting and wanted to do it. But I picked up the book, Family Law, and four or five of the cases I tried were in the book. So I thought, hell, that's a good chance to teach students on cases that the professors actually tried. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah. A lot of times with students encounter in the law schools is professors who actually have tried no cases. That's right. Yeah. And I've tried a number of them, which is, I think, helpful in bringing the students not only the letter of the law, but the effect of the law and how it works. So let me ask you this, Andy. How long did it take you to develop a trial persona, personality, style? Pick your noun there. How long did it take you to develop the trial lawyer, Andy Coates? Well, I think it's interesting to think, you know, some of the ways I tried to do things other people do, and then I sort of analyzed those things and thought, is that really something? And I think all of us have gotten good at it, and that's everybody in the college has gotten good at it. They wouldn't be in the college. 
I think you finally developed the time to look. I'm going to go in and be me, knowing what I know and knowing how I need to do things. But I'm going to go in and be Andy Coach and see if the jurors and the witnesses and all like me. I figured out that, oddly enough, I unsmoothed a little bit. Jurors became suspicious of lawyers that were very smooth. And so I really tried to be a little more folksy, particularly when I was out in the country trying cases. But I think I did develop my own style, which over the years turned out to be pretty successful. Let me linger on that a bit. Do you think jurors are inherently suspicious of lawyers who are too smooth to the point of coming off as slick? I think there's a danger of it. Some of them won't be. Some of them will want to see the people like they expect to see them on television. Right. But there are those who are suspicious of lawyers anyway. And if you're too smooth and too slick, I think it doesn't come across as well. It's just being your natural self. I mean, yeah. when I ran for high office at one time, Oral Roberts was a supporter of mine for a while. And he said to me about being on television, he says, just look at the television camera and think of it as somebody that you really like that you're explaining the story to them. And I thought that encapsulized to some degree the way I've talked to jurors. And you have to be careful with cross-examination. I mean, it needs to be very effective and very well good. But a lot of times you're better off just saying, I don't have any questions. Young lawyers particularly want to cross-examine people. And they don't have anything to cross-examine about except they feel like they need to do it. And of course, the answer to that is you don't. I mean, you give them a chance to retell their story, and then the other guy gets to come up and cross and uh, redirect and then let them restate it. So the jurors get to hear the story three times. Or if you just smiled and sat down, it would be more effective. A good trial lawyer here in town named Burke Bailey, who was a fellow of the college, and he did some criminal work. And the people in the newspaper described him as doing the Burke smirk. And he'd just get up and he'd smile. And he'd say, oh, we don't have any questions for this witness and sit down. I love and if it. he wasn't upset about it, the jury wasn't. I mean, was, I thought it was very effective. Yeah, the Burke smirk. I'll borrow that sometimes. So at some point, you got the bug for public service because you ran and held two offices, mayor and district attorney. Is that right? Well, it wasn't quite like that. I was practicing on the firm and doing very well. And at the time, I was president of the county bar. And the guy who had, was the first assistant over there was a longtime friend of my father's, and a guy that we played bridge with a lot, really a good guy. And he called me and I said, would you, as president of the county bar, would you endorse me to be the DA to replace the Curtis Harris, the current DA who had died? And I said, of course I would, be glad to. So the guy who was the counsel of the governor at the time, a guy named Boston Smith, had been a district judge here and had left the judgeship to go out and be the general counsel for the governor. So I called him and we missed each other and didn't connect. And so I was arguing a case out in the Supreme Court of Oklahoma. I turned around before I got up and saw that Boston had come in and was sitting in the back of the courtroom. And I assumed he just was coming to hear what I had to say. So I did the arguments. And after it was over, I saw him. I said, hey, Boston, I tried to call you. I want to recommend Jim McKinney's in the office. He's the first assistant. He'd do a good job. Boston looked at me and he says, Andy, he says, the governor's not going to appoint anybody that's now in the office. And he wants you to do it. And I said, I beg your pardon? Oh my. He says, I want you to do it. And I said, looked around and said, who are you talking to? He says, talking to you. You're at a time in your life when partner firm, I know it's a big change, but you know, sometimes in life we have to give back. God, it never occurred to me I'm going to do that. But the more I thought about it, it was springtime. And I'd been doing the same kind of stuff for, you know, on the civil side for 13 years. And the idea to go over and be the district attorney of Oklahoma County. We're about a million or so people here. And, you know, it's a general metropolitan area. That's a big jurisdiction. Yeah, it's a good one. So I agreed to go. Went over there, and I really hadn't practiced very much criminal law, as I said, a little bit up in federal court, but I hadn't done very much in state court. So it was a new beginning for me to take over the office and 
office was really in bad shape. It had been neglected a lot over the years. It was like stepping back into Charles Dickens' days. They were still writing out writs by hand. And I mean, it was quite a place. Anyway, got in there and, and I spent two years and I was enjoying doing it. And I get to try some big cases and murder cases and fun cases. Oddly enough, as time as the, I think I spent about as much time trying not to send people to the penitentiary as I did trying to send them there. The criminal justice system, if you can use it to change their conduct at that point in their life when they're under the gun, facing sentencing or something of that kind, you understand that. You were elected DA, so you know that. Sure. You really have the best chance of changing their lives and changing their conduct that you're probably ever going to have. So I did a lot of that. We put in some programs, a task, which was called Treatment Alternatives to Street Crimes, and we got drug people. And we did some other things that I think were helpful. You could, the bad guys you got to deal with. But there were some people who had sort of wandered into the system of justice and needed to be tapped on the wrist and sent out to do something else. And so we did. That's a pretty progressive perspective for the early to mid 80s, though. I mean, I, right? It was, particularly in Oklahoma City, it was. Yeah. yeah. Their view was, I sang them all. I said, oh, that's not right. That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, we did that, and I was able to attract some really bright, capable younger lawyers to come in and work with me on the program. And we didn't lose many cases, but we also used a feather instead of a hammer sometimes. So let me just ask you, did that take long term? I mean, did that result in long term changes to the criminal justice system in Oklahoma County? What happened to me was that I had these programs that were a little uh, fragile. And so I had been pointed to fill a two year term. So I decided that I would, and it was hard because this was a really financial haircut. I mean, for me to leave the partnership in the big firm to come over here and work for the state was not a financial boon at all. But I thought, man, I can do it a little longer. And so I ran for elections. First time I was ever run for anything. And I ran for election. And there was a district judge here that uh, ran against me. And we were running that time for the Democratic nomination. And uh, it was a good race, but I won pretty handily and got into my second year. But it kind of got my interest in politics up a little more, I think, that I'd run once and was elected. And more importantly, I think, for people around the state, I mean, all the television went out of Oklahoma City. So I was on television all the time. And people around the state got to know me a little bit. And uh, the programs, I was able to take them for two more years. We had people hired to be involved in it and people that were governing the programs, but it, they weren't likely to be abolished immediately, at least. Well, people must have liked something you were doing because you were elected to serve as mayor, too. Is that correct? Well, what happened again is a, it's a kind of a long story. The biggest murder case in the history of Oklahoma, except for the murder bombing, was a sirloin stockade murders. They found somebody robbed a sirloin stockade restaurant out in South Oklahoma City and took all six of the people working there and had them come in and sit down in the meat freezer and killed all six of them. And it dumped into my lap. I got a call one night, so you better come see this. And our investigator was out there. So I went out there and sure enough, you could see the dead people sitting in the meat freezer. They'd all been shot. So it was a long, involved process. It's a wonderful story, but we don't have time for it today. But basically, we found the guy that did it, and we tried him. We had to go to court a couple of times to get the law straightened out so that we could try the case. And, uh, I mean, for example, our main we found his wife, who was the main witness. At the time we got the case up and going, the law was that a wife was incompetent to testify against her husband. But the legislature passed the new evidence code, and it said that the wife could testify about things they did together and saw together. The only thing they couldn't testify about communications between the two of them when nobody else was there. But we didn't know whether that was substantive law or procedural. If it was substantive law, she would not have been able to testify because at the time of the crime, that law wasn't in effect. If it was procedural, of course, it can be effect at the time we do the trial. 
So we had to go out to the Court of Criminal Appeals and get them to tell us which this was. And they said it was procedural so we could use her testimony at trial, which was a big deal in putting the case together so we could get the conviction. Wow. And so he actually went to trial. Was it a capital prosecution? Yeah, it was capital. And he was later executed and deservedly so. I mean, the guy really did. He killed another little family. He got picked up as a hitchhiker. He and his wife and his brother had trouble with their truck and pulled off the road and got her out standing along the roadside. And Air Force officer and his wife are going to Nebraska and a child, a little boy came by and they killed them too. They stopped to help them and they killed all three of them as well. So it was, you know, you can argue, all of us have mixed emotions about the death penalty. And I always have had. And signing a death warrant was a sort of an emotional thing in some ways for me. But uh, if you're going to do one, this is one that needed to be done. Not only was there not any shred of a doubt that he did what he did, but that he'd done it in those two situations. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean when you say that, that it's an emotional experience. I remember running for office and campaigning as an opponent to the death penalty. And I remember standing on somebody's porch and I said to a potential voter that I couldn't conceive of a situation in which I would not offer life without parole. The day before I was sworn into office, two families were slaughtered in Richmond. And as you say, that was literally dropped in my lap. I was at the scene before I was sworn in. And I had to take one of those cases to verdict and get a death sentence. And the other, I was able to plead to LWAP largely because the defendant was within two or three points of, uh, you know, what we call then mental retardation. Folks assume that it's a fun experience, but it's anything but. It's not. I mean, you know that it's the right thing to do and you know that you need to convict this person and getting the case organized and preparing it for trial and anticipating what the defense is going to do. And, you know, we not only gave them access to all the Brady material, but we put every bit of evidence we had in a room and let them come in and look at it and do a deal with it. So it was, I think, clearly the right thing to do. It's interesting. My view of the death penalty was I had two parts of it. One of it was that there wasn't any question, not only by a reason, that wasn't any doubt at all that this person was guilty of it, and two, that they'd kill somebody else, or likely would, if they were left out. And I could do it that way. I have later, we had the governor appointed a death penalty commission. A number of us spent a long time studying from all around the country and doing things, and we put out a pretty hefty report on the death penalty. And all of us, I think, came away with the idea that it's outmoded in the United States. We don't need it. It's inconsistent. It doesn't make any sense, and that life without parole is adequate. Uh, you know, I hope to see you at one of the college meetings. There's some amazing parallels in our experiences, but we can share those privately. When I'd like that very much. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So, um, you know, the fellows would kill me if we didn't turn to the NC2A case, particularly given the season of the year. You give me a few minutes on that. Sure. Be glad to. All right. Now, I had no idea, Andy, I just had no idea until you sent me the email of the gravity of the case, right? But my understanding is you were part of a, a litigation team that brought suit to challenge what sounds like the NC2A monopoly on TV coverage of football games. Is that right? That's exactly right. And this is back in 84. Yeah, I was mayor of Oklahoma City at the time. <laughs> And we had not just recently lost a sales tax election that I really wanted to get passed. And I come to my office and I get a call from a good friend who is one of the regents of the University of Oklahoma. And he says to me, would you be interested in representing the University of Oklahoma and the University of Georgia against the NCAA on the question of football television? 
And of course, well, I mean, that kind of, hey, what do you say? No, I wouldn't. I said, damn, sure would. That sounded be very, very interesting. <laughs> right. He said, well, there's a hearing on a preliminary injunction set now for three weeks from now. And the Georgia people are going to come tomorrow and we'd like you to meet with them and they'll put their case forward. And so we did. Fred Davidson, the president of Georgia, came and we sat down and I had one very bright partner of mine, this friend of mine, asked to get him involved in it because he really was a wonderful lawyer and later a fellow of the college. And so he worked with me on the case. The main guy on the case really was a guy named Chuck Ninus, who had been the commissioner of the Big Eight and who was the head then of what was known as the College Football Association, the CFA. And it was composed of all of the football playing schools, Notre Dame, Army, Navy, the conferences, everybody but the Pac-10 and the Big Ten. Some of my research indicates that in 84, ESPN, for example, telecast nine college football games, right? And I'm just thinking you'd get through nine college football games in the first half of an afternoon today. That's right. And that was unusual. Originally, had it been, when we started dealing with it, there was one game, game of the week on Saturday afternoon. Yeah. A lot yeah. of schools had never been on television. And then they let ESPN do a few games. But they wouldn't let SPN do the big games. They mostly made them do the ones that ABC didn't want. So they could pick up some of the games along the way. And after we sued them, well, we had this preliminary hearing. We all got ready and we had the preliminary hearing because NCAA was with ABC. And CFA had entered into a contract with NBC to be played at some time other than Saturday afternoon, Saturday night or Saturday morning, some of the time. So they didn't conflict with the ABC program. And the schools would provide the games. And again, NBC could select which games they wanted to, and they figured out how to do it. But it was voluntary. You didn't have to do it, or you could do other things if you wanted to. But the NBC and the CFA contract had a provision. Well, when NCA found out about it, that CFA had done that, they came out and they said, we're going to sanction anybody that does the contract, and we're not going to sanction just the football programs. We'll sanction any other programs they have if they participate in this TV program with NBC. Well, as you can imagine, that scared the hell out of Duke and Kansas and the basketball schools. And they had the provision in the contract they could drop out. And so we immediately filed an action. The Georgia folks filed it and brought it here. We tried. I'm not sure why they brought it here, but they did. And I tried it. We tried the preliminary injunction part. And we had to establish, you know, that first of all, that we were in danger. And secondly, that there was likelihood we'd win the case as it went on. And the court came down with an order in our favor, but it wasn't as clear as it probably should have been. They were afraid of an appeal. And so enough of the colleges dropped out of the NBC contract that it went away. And we were left with the lawsuit against the NCAA, which we tried here. All of our judges recused and they brought in a judge named Juan Berciaga from New Mexico. He tried the case. We did some discovery around. We went around the country. NCA had Jimmy Fellers, who was president of the American Bar here, and a guy named Bob Harry from Davis Grant and Stubbs in Denver, and the lawyers from County Mission, Kansas, that were represented the NCA regulators. So they had a lot of lawyers. I always enjoyed the idea that they had a lot of lawyers. So we tried the first round of the case, the trial court against seeking an injunction to disqualify NCAA from involving themselves the way they did in the football television business. And uh, the trial court opinion was wonderful. He found them both that they were part of a group to restrain trade and that they also were monopolists. But this case ends up before the U.S. Supreme Court. It does. Well, on the 10th Circuit, we won in the 10th Circuit two to one, and then the Supreme Court granted certiorari. And of course, it makes you feel uncomfortable because you figure you're probably going to lose or they wouldn't be doing it. But it only took four of them, but they did. And so we then prepared and went up to argue it. And 
And I felt very appreciative of Chuck Ninus I've told you about because we went to Supreme Court and all the college presidents were saying, oh, hell, you better get somebody who argues regularly in the Supreme Court to do the case. He said, no, Andy's brought us this far. I'm going with him. So Were you first chair, so to speak? Oh, yeah, all the way through. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, no, it was my case. And, you know, we spent a lot of time on television and radio. Everybody wanted to talk about it all the time. Yeah. Some of the people, you guys remember Ed Walsh. Ed Walsh was the Iran Gate prosecutor and one of the finest lawyers I've ever known. And was a judge. He was a senior partner, a big New York firm and all the things that happened. Well, he had to retire from his firm, so he married an Oklahoma girl. And he came down and was in our law firm. He was handling the national Benedictine cases. And he was a hell of a lawyer. Anyway, he came by when he found out I was going to argue the case. He said, Andy, he said, you hang around here so you don't have people, distractions, do things. Get the hell out of here and go somewhere. And so we went to Washington and got a suite in a hotel not far from the Supreme Court. And uh, I think I read and briefed every damn case there was that was anywhere close to this organization restraint of trade kind of situation. So in 84, you bring this suit. I mean, as you tell the story, you literally get a call out of the blue or a visit out of the blue. Did you have any sense that the ruling would be as impactful as it was? Because as I read the articles, it looks like this ruling was just a game changer, right? It just opened up. Oh, it changed the world. In fact, all the problems today, it's very interesting. Justice White was on the court and he cross-examined me some on the argument, but he thought it was a bad idea. And we lost him and Justice Rehnquist, uh, the rest of the justices held for us. But I had known Justice White a little bit. And talk about somebody that's fascinating. You know, he was the leading running back and rookie of the year for the Pittsburgh Steelers at the same time he was attending Yale Law School, which is pretty amazing sort of thing. He was a Rhodes Scholar. I love the story he told me about while he's studying at Oxford, he's also got away on the weekends. He's wandering in Germany. He went to one of these pubs where they clink their glasses and drank a lot. And he walked in there, looked around. There was a guy sitting over in the corner by himself, an American. And so he walked over and introduced himself. And it was John Kennedy. Later, of course, when he ran, he supported him in Colorado and then ended up as Bobby Kennedy's number one in the attorney general's office and then got appointed to Supreme Court. Anyway, I saw him three or four months after I had made the argument. Just as he's leaving, he's passed, he turned back to me and he says, Andy, he said, you may win that case, but you'll regret it. Wow. And I never have personally regretted it, but I regret the mess it's made, obviously, when you have the conferences making billions and the universities and all the coaches are making millions. There's got to be a real tendency to want to do something for the students. And what they've done is to create this payment for their face and image, which is, I mean, you know, it's just clear out of control. They're not amateurs anymore. They're all semi-pros, which is... All because we released the tiger. Right. The early reaction, I imagine, was positive. When did you begin to see signs of trouble? That is, when did you begin to see that you had, in fact, released the tiger? Not right away, because we saw that actually money went down the first year or so. And we told people it was likely to do that when you did the fact of limiting the games and limiting the exposures. And obviously, the television stations would pay more money for it. Every year when they had it under NCAA, they'd negotiate with ABC or CBS. They'd be able to know what the game rights would be. And it was the same for every game. We always thought one of the more interesting results of that was the Citadel was playing a Pelosian state at the same time that Oklahoma ranked number one and Southern Cal ranked number two were out in the Rose Bowl. And they treated the OU and Southern Cal case the same price that they paid for the Appalachian state and the Citadel. 
and then both of them was regional games. Hmm. It was regional, and ours went into, I don't know, 46 states and maybe 47 states, and uh, the other game went into two, and yet we bought the same fees, which made everybody a little grumpy at the time. I imagine so. But, uh, yeah, that's what happened. Anyway, so you didn't really notice it till you got to the place where the coach's salaries began to boom up pretty good. Every time they'd get a coach would move, well, he'd get a million dollars, additional million-dollar salary of some kind. And then the conferences, we began to change conference. The Southwest Conference went away and the Big 12 became in its place. And some of those people then went on to Big 10 and to the Southeast Conference. So it's nearly all been money. I mean, the Southeast Conference, I don't know, they got $60 million of school and the Big 12 got $40 million or something. I mean, there was a significant difference in how much you make. And it's all because we released the Tiger. So I'm going to ask you an unfair question. I suspect you've been asked before. If in retrospect, if you could frame the case differently, would you have argued for any guardrails to sort of prevent some of the expansion or the monetization of it? Well, that's a wonderful question. What happened is, look, we learned that NCAA stood for never compromise anything anytime. Right. And Walter Byers was ahead of it, and he was a tough old bird. I liked him a lot. I've had a good time cross-examining him, but he's strong, and they never would do that. They never had voted on TV. They just took it over. When After World War II, the veterans call came back, and so the live attendance at football games was pretty high. About the same time, TV started coming on. Two or three years later, most of those veterans had graduated and gone away, and the attendance at colleges was smaller. But they argued that the live attendance was less because of TV. Well, it wasn't less because of TV, but that they took it over right then. They did some studies and said, oh, yeah, that's the reason. TV people won't come to games at TV, and we won't come to the games. And so we got to limit TV. And so they just took it over by edict and did it. They had never voted on it. In fact, during our preliminary injunction hearing, the NSA said, oh, well, we'll take it up at our next convention. We'll have a vote on it. And so they told the court that. My partner and I were invited and went to the convention and we were treated like illegitimate children at a family reunion. But Bob Devaney of Nebraska and the Los Dodds of Texas, the guys, they'd come by and they'd say, now, we can't use our name and don't we're involved in it, but we'll send you some money and we sure hope you win. <laughs> so then they declared out of order and never did vote on it. So it was all just a figment of Walter Byers' imagination in some respects and his ability to get things done as an executive. He's really good. But when the opinion came down, of course, they'd appealed it all the way up and down the line. But after the trial opinion, we went back to him and said, look, anyway, we can settle this deal. This is going to be, you know, both of our schools were uncomfortable about suing the NCAA and the organization they're part of. And uh, we'd like to find some way to resolve this. No, hell no, we can't do it. We're going to keep with this. And we did the same thing after we won in the Tenth Circuit. Then there was some hope of negotiation before the Supreme Court ruled, but we never could get them to talk to us about setting up some kind of limitations, which should have happened. What should have happened is that once we won the first round, we should have gone and sat down and say, what can we do to make everybody happy here? Because I think the college presidents were uncomfortable about it. They didn't want to be turning it into something else that was not best for their students or best for the universities, as it turned out it is. You know, I enjoy college sports. I'm not an expert on it by any stretch, but my sense is that there's some degree of dependence on the money now. Well, some schools had used state money to support the athletic programs, but a lot of them couldn't. And so the football program had to support, and it was about the only thing that made money. Uh, at that time, the basketball programs weren't quite as successful, and March Madness didn't generate as much funds as it does. But they had to do that. So one of the reasons that, that impelled and compelled the University of Oklahoma and the University of Georgia was Title IX came in. And all of a sudden, they're going to have to spend about the same amount of money in some relative portions for women's sports. And they didn't have the money. 
And so they had to find some way to generate additional income. And the idea of having television pay you a lot of money was a good idea. Oklahoma was always on a couple of times a year. You could only be on twice a year. And Oklahoma was on a couple of times every year. So was Georgia, but it just wasn't enough. Yeah, that's interesting. All right. So let me ask you just one thing that strikes me as real neat about your background. You were inducted into the Hall of Fame of the National Black Law Students Association at the National Convention in D.C. Is that right? Yeah, I've done a lot over the years for women and for black people, not because of they were women or because they were black, but because they were really good at what they did and they deserved to have a chance to be there. And so I've had a lot to do with getting people on the various courts in Oklahoma and in around, and that was recognized, which was nice. Well, that is a real nice accolade. I'll tell you that. So next, in the age of fewer trials, and I ask every interviewee this, in the age of fewer trials, how do you think young lawyers will continue with our craft? It is a great worry for everybody because, I'm, you know, my son was United States attorney here for six years. And there's just so many of the cases, the criminal cases were only being tried, but there are a lot of the courthouses empty. You walk down the halls and there's nothing there. Yeah, I think it's come back. Frankly, I think they're trying more today than they were a few years ago. But I think it's a problem. One's terribly expensive for people to be involved in a major trial. And only the big cases get tried anymore. So the chances for people to learn, as I did, trying the little cases at the same time you're participating in the big ones really isn't out there much. So it is a significant problem. And I don't see a good answer to it. I'm not sure that they're doing so much more by arbitration. And some of that, we allow that to count. But it is a significant problem, and I don't think there is a good answer so far. Yeah, I definitely think ADR is a good development. And as you say, it's arguably more cost effective, but it to some degree is going to come at the expense of trial lawyering. I think it is because it's just a different world. I mean, being involved in trying cases of juries, and we agreed some years ago that the guy that did a lot of divorce work was an advocate, and he was an advocate in an adversary situation, and that's what you needed to have. So we may need to be thinking about other things, other contests of various kinds, administrative hearings of various kinds. Maybe we want to be something we could look at a little bit. But I do think it's something that is of concern to all of us who spend our lives as trial lawyers. Last question, Andy. You use the phrase, it's a different world. The practice has, I would imagine, changed quite a bit since you came to the bar in 1963. If you had to say the practice has evolved for the better or for the worse? There are two aspects of it. One, I don't think the fellowship at the bar is as warm and friendly and as consistent as it used to be because people just aren't together much. We used to have everybody came to a motion hearing and you heard all the good lawyers and we lawyers and you go out and have a cup of coffee afterwards and that sort of thing. You got to know the other lawyers better. I don't think that happens as much anymore. And to that thing, I'm disappointed it's gone away. I think it's more efficient now. I just am disappointed that there's fewer opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. The price of efficiency has been opportunities for collegiality. I think that's right. And I miss that. I loved it. A young lawyer, they'd give me a stack of files and I'd go to the courthouse to deal with the motions. And you knew people that were there and you watched the good ones and the ones that weren't so good. It was really neat. Yep. 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 Well, Andy, this has been a treat for me. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I'm sure our fellows will enjoy our conversation. And I hope you and I get to share a moment in person sometime. I'd sure like to do that, Mike. It's been pleasant talking to you. And of course, over the years, having been president and a fellow for a long time, I think I am, except for Bob Fisk in New York, I think I'm the senior living president. So it's always a pleasure to get to, <laughs> to be remembered and get to talk to you and to the other fellows of the college. Oh, that's real neat. All right. Wonderful. Well, I hope you have a nice afternoon. Thank you so much, Andy. 
Thank you for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. ACTL is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every episode.